Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Something to note, all of the groups covered on this show operate in secret. The details included in this episode are based on extensive research, but ultimately can never be 100% verified except by society members themselves. For every kernel of truth, there's a swath of misinformation strategically crafted by each group to protect their true goals and practices. It was late in the evening of November 5th, 1863, in the coal region of Pennsylvania. Mine owner George K. Smith had just left his post at work. As he walked through the field that took him to his house, he had this unexplainable feeling, like he was being watched. He was too tired to give it much more thought, and before he knew it, he was home. But as the clock struck 10, a mob of men in disguises arrived at his door. They forced their way into the house, finding Smith standing in a hallway. With a single shot to the back of his head, Smith was dead. His wife and children watched in terror. News of the assassination spread like wildfire through the nation. The New York Times claimed it was because he incurred the hatred of the Irish miners after he'd fired a few members of their community. Others believed the homicide was an act of rebellion, meant to shut down the mines. Without fuel, they hoped the civil war in America would stall. Still others tried to link the murder to its date, November 5th, Guy Fawkes Day a day that had been infused with anti-Catholic sentiment for over two centuries. But no matter the motivation, the suspects were the same. The violent Irish Catholic secret society, the American Molly Maguires.
Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Greg Polson. And this is Secret Societies, a ParCast original. Every Thursday, we examine history's most exclusive organizations from around the world and try to shine a light on the truth behind these mysterious groups. From the Illuminati to the Order of Nine Angles, we'll explore how much impact each secret society actually had on the world around them. This is our second and final episode on the Molly Maguires, a violent Irish secret society of farmers that emerged in the 19th century, and it may have made its way to America shortly after. Last week, we did our best to piece together the clues to get a sense of the elusive Mollies in Western Ireland. They were loyal, demanded justice for the working class, and weren't afraid to kill. We might not know how much blood was actually spilt in their pursuit of justice, but if the legends are true, it could fill swimming pools. We also discussed the rumors of American Molly Maguires and their founding. Did they actually exist? This week, we'll dive deeper into the political landscape of the time. We'll explore the actions of the reporter who made them famous, the men who exposed them, and the trials that will never be forgotten. The Molly Maguires is an Academy Award-nominated film starring Sean Connery, Richard Harris, and Samantha Egger. Released in 1970, the movie reintroduced American audiences to the notorious Irish secret society. It's filled with drama, gunfights, corruption, and greed. At the time, its advertisements boasted that the script was inspired by real-life events. But despite the film's portrayal, the existence of the Mollies in America is still debated by scholars today. And as it turns out, our image of them has been influenced by the media since day one. The first mention of Mollies on American soil happened in 1857 in a newspaper called The Miner's Journal. The paper was run by a man named Benjamin Bannon. Though whispers of Molly activity likely predated Bannon's article, he played a critical role in shaping their narrative. Given its name, you might assume that the Miner's Journal shared the values of the Irish immigrants in the area. Many, after all, labored in the mines. But that wasn't the case, not in the least. There were a few ideologies that drove a wedge between Bannon and the Irish population chiefly nativism and the concept of a free labor economy. A nativist is anyone who seeks to protect the interests of those born within a country, in this case, America. Naturally, as a nativist, Bannon viewed immigrants like the Irish as a threat. The free labor economy, however, is a bit more complicated. In a free labor economy, no matter your circumstance, anyone can theoretically work hard enough to eventually own their own business. It's what birthed the concept of the American dream. Bannon's ideal vision of America included a dominant middle class filled with small business capitalists and entrepreneurs. The Irish disrupted that vision. Due to circumstances both within and outside of their control, they remained laborers, which fueled derision in Bannon's paper. He portrayed them as immoral, ignorant, lazy drunks. He slandered their Catholic religion, calling it idolatry. Bannon himself was a fervent Presbyterian. He wrote, quote, fraudulent naturalization papers were given to thousands of immigrants not entitled to them. Of course, those allegations were baseless. But one issue rose above the rest, 
one that didn't stem from inherent bias, one that divided more than the coal region of Pennsylvania. It divided the entire country. Slavery. In the mid-1800s, your position on slavery likely determined your political affiliation. If you opposed it, you were Republican. If you were in favor, you were a Democrat. Bannon, of course, was ardently opposed to slavery. It went against everything that a free labor economy stood for. The Irish, on the other hand, were largely Democrats. We can only speculate as to why the Irish chose the Democratic Party, but Bannon repeatedly wrote in the Miner's Journal that the affiliation baffled him. It was blind to their own interests. And in many ways, he was right. Their stance on slavery was undoubtedly rooted in deeply ingrained racism. And it likely didn't hurt that slavery meant there would always be someone on a lower rung of the social ladder. But in addition, their political positioning became inextricably tied to civil war efforts in the years to come. They opposed the growth of the federal government's power, especially as it related to the draft. As for the free labor economy, historians hypothesized that the Irish felt left out of that vision. Social mobility was a concept that didn't and couldn't apply to them. And without any legitimate means to get ahead, they allegedly formed the Molly Maguires and supported the Democratic Party. The fact that in doing so, they were perpetuating that injustice tenfold in the form of slavery didn't occur to them, or frankly, didn't matter to them. What mattered was protecting their own. And one thing that the Irish made clear was that they knew how to present a united front. To fully illustrate what we mean, Let's travel back to before Benjamin Bannon ever typed the name Molly Maguires to the summer of 1846 in Schuylkill County, Pennsylvania. A young Welshman named John Reese shot and killed an Irish co-worker, Thomas Callahan, in a mine north of St. Clair. As we mentioned last week, hostility between members of the two nationalities frequently resulted in violence. While Reese was immediately arrested and imprisoned to await trial, he was later acquitted. The court ruled that he'd acted in self-defense. Whether or not it was a just decision is not ours to decide. We don't have enough evidence to even speculate. While there may have been more than a fair share of bias in the decision to free Reese, what's important for our story is the result. It fueled hatred and violence among the immigrant communities even further. On the night of December 30th, Reese was walking to his brother's house in Wadesville. He chose a route that took him along the railroad tracks, past the same mines where he'd shot and killed Thomas Callahan. And as he walked, a man rushed at him from behind and delivered one swing of a pickaxe to his skull, hard enough that Reese died from the injury. Eyewitnesses claimed that the murderer's face was covered in white powder, perhaps a nod to the Mollies of Ireland. Except in Ireland, they'd colored their faces with charcoal and dressed in drag when wreaking havoc. Either way, two days after Reese was killed, an Irishman named Martin Shea was arrested for the crime. When it came time for a trial, the Irish showed everyone just how united they could be. First-hand observers identified Shea as the killer in court, but the defense still had a case. They brought witness after witness to the stand. Each one provided Shea with a clear, consistent alibi. He couldn't possibly have done it, they told the court. He was with us. 
and the Irish lilt in their voices never once faltered. They even presented the court with an alternate lead. They recalled seeing a strange man hanging around the mines on the night of the murder. He bore a striking resemblance to Shea, sure, but that was just a coincidence. His name? Cummings, maybe? Or Divine? They couldn't remember. The prosecution was sent on a wild goose chase. No such man existed, which is to say the witnesses were probably lying through their teeth. And in the end, their efforts to get an acquittal for Shea didn't work. He was found guilty of first-degree murder and later hanged. But it was exactly this type of unity that Bannon had feared most. To him, the Irish weren't just immigrants. They weren't just Catholics. They were a voting bloc, one whose political views opposed his own. They stood in the way of his America. And in October of 1857, when Bannon typed the words Molly Maguire's on his typewriter, he accused them of conspiring with the Democratic Party to push an agenda. But for us, the question is, were the Molly Maguires active or were they a creation of Bannon's neurosis? We may not have the answer to that question, but we do have a third possibility. That Bannon's words inspired the Irish to create the very thing he accused them of being. He did, after all, make a case for how powerful they could be. Maybe he convinced members of the Irish community to start something. And when that resolve set in, they were ready to do more than conspire. They were ready to kill. Coming up, the Mollies' connection to another fraternal organization, the Ancient Order of Hibernians. Now, back to the story. In 1857, Benjamin Bannon was the first reporter to document suspicion of the Molly Maguire's presence in America. Whether his claim was true or not, his opinions influenced public perception for years. What he didn't mention in that article, however, was that there was another Irish society in Pennsylvania, one that was public and legal. They were called the Ancient Order of the Hibernians, and they still exist today. According to their website, the Ancient Order of Hibernians is America's oldest Irish Catholic fraternal organization founded concurrently in the coal mining region of Pennsylvania and New York City in May 1836. Members must be male, 16 years or older, Roman Catholic, and of Irish descent. All they supposedly ask is for you to embody the spirit of their motto, which is friendship, unity, and Christian charity. In the 19th century, however, the AOH existed predominantly to provide assistance to Irish immigrants and their families. We mention them because many believed, both then and now, that the AOH was a front for the Molly Maguires. You might have noticed that their website mentions they were founded in the coal mining region of Pennsylvania and New York City, specifically the coal mining region. At face value, it suggests a sense of pride for the Irish legacy in the area. But given the Molly Maguire's deep ties to its history, we can't help but feel like this phrase is a nod to those in the know, that maybe they are and were the Mollies. Anything more than a nod might be incriminating. But stay with us, the AOH wasn't the only other similar organization present at the time. Take the Working Men's Benevolent Association of Schoolkill County, a labor organization founded in 1868 to protect the rights of coal miners and laborers. And a good portion of its members were Irish. 
Officials at the time couldn't make sense of how the WBA possibly factored into the Molly McGuire's activity, if at all. And historians are still trying. Not only were there a lot of key players during the alleged reign of the Mollies in Anthracite, Pennsylvania, but there were a lot of moving pieces. To recap in broad strokes... There were unstable relationships between nativists and immigrants that caused toxic discrimination. Tension between different immigrant populations led to gruesome violence. Politics were divided along civic, social, and economic lines, which led to visceral partisan division. And all of that continued on as the United States went to war with itself in 1861, the Civil War. Men were drafted, many of whom didn't support the war, period. Some weren't even yet American citizens. And hundreds of thousands died before the battles ended in 1865. While the country tried to repair itself on a macro level, on a micro level, all of the tensions that had existed before the war remained. Immigrant laborers were still struggling to survive. Then, around 1870, major corporations like the Reading Railroad swept into the region. They bought out smaller mining operations and created what was, in a sense, a monopoly. Then, in 1873, the United States economy came crashing down, causing a panic. Economic overexpansion caused the stock market to plummet, and American workers were let go. The few that kept their jobs suffered pay cuts, those that didn't went without. American families began to starve, just as a new class of ultra-wealthy men came into power, like the president of the Reading Railroad, Franklin B. Gowan. Which is all to say that unrest was omnipresent. Crime, bloodshed, and murder were the realities of Schoolkill County, but it's unclear what organizations were responsible for perpetuating the violence. In order to find out, it would take an incredible amount of patience and dedication to sort through all the noise. But sometime around 1873, as panic was setting in, that became one man's job. Alan Pinkerton was contacted by the titan of coal himself, Franklin B. Gowan. Alan was a detective and spy who ran his own private intelligence service known as Pinkerton National Detective Agency. Its insignia was an open eye. Underneath read, we never sleep. Gowan was calling because he needed Alan's help tracking down an elusive organization he believed was dangerous, the Molly Maguires. He said they posed a threat to the lives of his workers and the people who lived in the area, but what he meant was, they were dangerous to business. You see, in addition to the scuffles and killing happening in the mines, a number of strikes had been called recently. And those strikes were costing Gowan money. He needed the headaches to go away. He claimed, I say there is an association which votes in secret at night that men's lives shall be taken. I do not blame the Workingmen's Benevolent Association, but I blame another association. And it happens that the only men who are shot are the men who dare disobey the mandates of the Workingmen's Benevolent Association. It's clear he meant the Molly Maguires. But it's important to note how he distinguishes the WBA from the Mollies. He's not accusing the WBA of anything. He's just accusing a few corrupt members. 
fighting a union like the Working Men's Benevolent Association or a legal society like the Ancient Order of the Hibernians would have been difficult. The red tape, legalities, and a potential PR nightmare were almost insurmountable. Going after a band of criminals, on the other hand, that seemed like a worthwhile investment. And if the Mollies were hiding behind the WBA or the AOH, Gowan would really be sending a message. He'd be killing three birds with one stone. We have no records for just how much Gowan offered Pinkerton. All we know is that he had money to burn. In no time at all, Alan Pinkerton assigned one of his best detectives to the case, a man named James McParlin. Though it may seem ironic, McParlin was Irish. He immigrated to America around the age of 24. He arrived in New York in 1867. But as a citizen of Northern Ireland, he likely had less allegiance to his motherland than you might think. As we mentioned in the last episode, the Irish Mollies hailed from the western coast, and the north was heavily influenced by both Protestant and British presence. We should also be clear that allegiance to Ireland in no way insinuated or begat allegiance to the Mollies. As you can imagine, there were a great number of Irish people who didn't support their actions. And even if some supported their goals, it didn't mean they supported the means by which they got there which, as a reminder, weren't exactly what you or I might call moral. McParlin was also an immigrant in a new land, in the midst of a depression. There was pressure not only to survive, but to assimilate. And if Gowan was paying the salary, we can only imagine how hard it would have been to turn this particular job down. But it was precisely because of his Irish heritage that he was chosen to work the case. He needed to blend in if he planned on infiltrating the Molly Maguires. His alias was James McKenna. Though the task placed before him was challenging, he wasn't working alone. Not exactly. Years before Gowan ever contacted the Pinkerton Detective Agency, the state of Pennsylvania created the Coal and Iron Police. They were a privatized law enforcement organization created by the state, but employed and funded by the coal companies. And by 1873, the coal companies meant Franklin B. Gowan. So with the coal and iron police on his side, McParlin was set up for success. Allegedly, his attempts to infiltrate the Mollies started with the AOH, the alleged front for their underground organization. And from there, he supposedly gained access to everything. The information he gathered was enough to arrest 50 alleged members of the Molly Maguires. Every one of them was also a member of the Ancient Order of Hibernians. They were accused of 16 counts of murder and quite a few counts of conspiracy. So what did James McParlane learn while in the belly of one of the most notoriously well-guarded secret societies on Earth? Whatever it was, it must have been good, because before the decade was over, 20 men were hanged on his word alone. Coming up, the trial of the Molly Maguires begins. Now, back to the story. The whispers of the Molly Maguires in Anthracite, Pennsylvania, may have preceded Benjamin Bannon's articles in 1857, but his narrative never changed. Something needed to be done. His stories first depicted the Mollies as political conspirators, then gang members, then ruthless killers and assassins. And the death tolls in Schuylkill County were high enough to support those claims. 
Around 1873, coal magnate Franklin B. Gowan finally acted on Bannon's wishes. He set out to purge the Mollies from the area, and to do so, he hired private detective James McParlin to investigate the secret society. According to McParlin, he started his infiltration by visiting their local hangouts, which mostly consisted of pool halls and saloons. Once he gained their trust and established himself within the community, he joined the ancient order of the Hibernians. And when he did, he confirmed his suspicion. It was a cover organization for the Molly Maguires. From there, penetrating the Mollies was almost easy. It took time, of course, but slowly, almost three years. He learned their names, their lives, and the secrets of their operation. Most importantly, he gathered all the incriminating evidence he could. McParlin was so entrenched in the organization that he actually became the secretary of the Shenandoah Division of Mollies. From that position, he was able to learn intimate details of their plots, which included sabotage, arson, and murder. McParlin, of course, avoided abetting their evil deeds. Using his insider information, he put an end to every dangerous scheme that came across his desk. He would either warn intended targets or use well-crafted diplomacy to convince the Mollies there were other options, which is to say he saved lives. At least that's what he told the court. McParlin's testimony was, by and large, all of the evidence that the jury had. The only real pieces of physical evidence were handwritten, hand-drawn coffin notices. They were drawings of coffins with words like, this is your house, written above them. They were all signed, Molly. These coffin notices were presented to the court to illustrate the intimidation tactics and threats that the Mollies used. Aside from that, it was the prosecution's word against the defenses. And the accuser's rhetoric could not have been clearer. The trials were much larger than any individual man's guilt or innocence. They were about sending a message. And in a way, that message was a response to the Molly's coffin notices. The prosecution maintained, quote, Molly Maguires who sat in their haunts, rum holes, saloons, kept by body masters, and who there coolly concocted the crime of murder, that they who think themselves thus secure because that they are not in the field of action, are just as guilty as the bullet to the heart of the victim. In other words, they had to be uprooted. If they weren't, they would, quote, destroy the principles of constitutional liberty upon which our government was founded. We should mention that Franklin B. Gowan was the former district attorney and represented the prosecution for many of these trials. The same man who ran the coal monopoly in the area, the same man who paid for the evidence to arrest the men, and who funded the coal and iron police that arrested them. That Franklin B. Gowan. As for the defense, they pled a similar case at each trial. Their strategy was to highlight the lack of evidence and plant seeds of doubt in the jury's mind. And they did so by proposing some alternative theories. For instance, McParlin could have been a conspirator to the crimes, maybe even a Molly himself. He was simply throwing his brethren under the bus in order to appear innocent. Or perhaps McParlin was a detective. Maybe he was telling the truth. What if he tricked the defendants into suggesting crimes? Maybe even lured them into committing those crimes, all to have something to write back to his bosses about. 
The most critical moment came when an accused Molly suddenly altered his story. In May 1876, James Kerrigan and five other alleged Mollies stood trial for two counts of murder. Initially, Kerrigan pled not guilty, but for reasons unknown, he suddenly changed his story. In exchange for his own life, Kerrigan testified against his Irish brethren and for the state. He maintained his own innocence, of course, but he blamed the other five men for the murders. It was an enormous win for the prosecution. Kerrigan's decision was the straw that broke the defense's case and their case for every trial thereafter. The jury now had testimony that implicated the Molly Maguires from an undercover insider and an actual insider. But was Kerrigan telling the truth? According to his wife, he was a liar. After James Kerrigan's sudden change of heart, his spouse, Fanny, took the stand, entirely of her own accord, to testify against her husband. She needed to let the jury know that James was responsible for the murders. And not only that, he'd acted alone. The men he was pinning the murders on were all innocent. Then, before the trial ended, one of the jurors mysteriously died and a mistrial was declared. All of Fanny's testimony was erased, and when a retrial was held, for reasons unknown, she didn't testify again. In the end, all five men were found guilty of their crimes and hanged. James Kerrigan, on the other hand, walked free. And to complicate matters even further, James McParlin, the detective whose testimony was the primary evidence for the prosecution, was said to be romantically involved with James Kerrigan's sister-in-law. In the end, we know that the jury found 20 men guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced them to die. Their names were Doyle, Munley, Carroll, Rorty, Boyle, Duffy, Campbell, and Donahue, to name a few. Afterwards, the Molly Maguires disappeared from American history, which could mean that the trials did exactly what they were meant to do, metaphorically cut the head off the snake and leave it to die. But we don't think so. In fact, we don't think an organization like the Molly Maguires ever existed in Pennsylvania, at least not in the way they were portrayed by James McParlane and Franklin B. Gowan in the late 1870s. To be clear, the 16 men the Mollies were accused of murdering were by no means made up, and many of them may have been killed by Irish miners, maybe even a few of them by Irish gangs. The distinction we're trying to draw is that the American Molly Maguires were never a large-scale underground secret society. They weren't the skull and bones, they weren't the Illuminati and they never posed a serious threat to an entire region or to constitutional liberty. First point of evidence, the length of time James McParlin spent infiltrating the Molly McGuire's. He was inside the organization for nearly three years and still produced no physical proof. He even claimed that he was the secretary of one of their divisions. Surely he would have come across something he could have used in court. And if the Molly Maguires were as dangerous and ruthless as McParlin claimed, how did three years pass without a single arrest? McParlin would only need access to one of their schemes to catch them in action and have them taken in. Instead, he chose to stop those plans from happening. 
but still managed to use the suggestion of crimes to incriminate the Mollies in court. And as the defense stated, McParlin was being paid to do one thing, take down the Molly McGuire's from the inside. It was possible for McParlin to fabricate a reality to appease his incredibly powerful boss, Franklin B. Gowan. And Gowan had motivations of his own. By sentencing 20 men to death, Gowan was able to send a message to every working person in the area, don't interrupt his business. In fact, his message would have been more powerful if the Mollies weren't real. Every immigrant community and all labor unions heard, you can go on strike, you can use all of the legal powers at your disposal. It won't matter. I can still have you hanged. The Molly Maguires, of course, weren't a creation of Gowan's imagination. They were a real secret society in Ireland before Benjamin Bannon's fear and paranoia planted the seed of their existence in America. Like McParlin, Bannon had no evidence whatsoever to support his claims. But it didn't matter. For the public, he made them real. Real enough that they were a ready-made foil for Gowan's heroism when he needed an enemy to rid from the land. And sure, Bannon may have inspired the Molly Maguire movement. There was undoubtedly violence in the area, but that violence was being perpetrated by other communities besides the Mollies, other immigrants, nativists, anti-war activists, gangs. There's no doubt that a group of Irishmen killed George K. Smith in his home on November 5th, or that Martin Shea killed John Reese. There were witnesses, and there very well might have been Irish Americans who referred to themselves as Molly Maguires. But we can safely assume that the picture that was painted of the Mollies in 1876 and 1877 wasn't indicative of reality. As far as Kerrigan's testimony goes, the Irishman who took to the stand against the Molly Maguires, it should be taken with a grain of salt. Later in his career, McParlin was found manipulating a suspect into confessing. As he did, he referenced the Molly trials and minced no words. Those who took his advice and testified for the state saved their own neck and went entirely free. Those who didn't suffered. Maybe the person who gave the most accurate account of the events was Fanny Kerrigan, the wife who claimed that her husband, James, was pinning his crime on five innocent men. That feels true. It acknowledges that the Irish weren't innocent, but the actions of a few didn't implicate the whole. And the reality was they were living in unjust times. Something needed to change. Sure, violence is never the answer, but even if the Mollies were real, they were just a symptom of a much larger problem. Maybe the trials of the Molly Maguires should be examined as a case study in human behavior, our tendency to blame the symptom and not the source. The source being, in this case, a system that took advantage of the poor to the benefit of Franklin B. Gowan. Maybe the real people to fear are those men that have the power to affect meaningful change, but choose greed instead. The ones who pin blame on vulnerable communities in order to create division and to distract the lower classes from rising up. Fear is their power. But as Benjamin Bannon illustrated, what they don't want you to know is that they fear you far more than you'll ever fear them. They fear a revolution.
Thanks again for tuning into Secret Societies. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. For more information on the Molly Maguires, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Making Sense of the Molly Maguires by Kevin Kenny extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Secret Societies and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Secret Societies, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Secret Societies on Spotify, just open the app and type Secret Societies in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Secret Societies was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Russell Nash. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Secret Societies was written by Connor Sampson. With writing assistance by Maggie Admire. And stars Greg Paulson and Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.